the month was July, the year was 1991, and the city of Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin and the areas around were shocked by the grotesque news that, were come, that came out of the city as a serial murder had been apprehended by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. Between 1978, starting at the age of 18, all the way through 1991 when he was apprehended, Dahmer would rape, murder, dismember, and then cannibalize 17 different victims. Grotesque in thinking about the evil that is possible to rise up in, in one's heart. Arrested in July, sentenced in uh, 1992, I believe it was in July of 1992, he was sentenced to 15 consecutive years of life imprisonment, 964 years. And then while serving his consecutive life imprisonments, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer was murdered while in prison in 1994. And it was around the time of his death, and I can't remember if it was before his death or shortly after his death, but news began to surface about his conversion to Christ while in prison, his confession and his remorse of the wrong that he had done, the testimony of his baptism and of a pastor who would meet with him weekly for Bible study and discipleship. And I remember the news as it came out about Dahmer's conversion that some were upset if Jeffrey Dahmer's in heaven, I don't want to go there. Many were skeptical whether it was a real confession of faith. We don't know. Right? But the Lord does. And so let's operate on the assumption that Dahmer is in heaven today. That he was a true believer. The question that must be asked is how could anyone like Jeffrey Dahmer be saved? How could that be? And the answer is simple. God is mighty to save. God is mighty to save. 2,000 years ago, there was another man who would ha savagely hunt down people and either imprison them or be part of their uh, sentence to death of those whom he had hunted down. He was brutal. He was vicious. Our text this morning that we're going to see says that he would breathe out murderous threats against the people of God. And yet this blood-spilling adversary became chief emissary of the gospel. How could that happen? God is mighty to save. The name of this adversary turned emissary is none other than the person that we know as the Apostle Paul. And what we find this we'll find him this morning in Acts chapter 9. We'll find him going by his birth name. His birth name is Saul. Paul's testimony, since we mostly know him by Paul, so I'm just going to, if I say Saul, Paul, you know who I'm talking about, right? Paul, uh, Paul's testimony at the end of his life was this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he wrote these words. Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full, full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the saying. Let, let's say it together. Do we, do we have this verse up here? John, got you snoozing, man. <laughs> there we go, here we go. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Let's say it together. That Christ Jesus came to save... Yeah, you guys got the words. I don't have the words. Let's say it together again. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, 
of whom I am foremost. I'm the chief sinner. I'm sinner number one. I'm at the head of the class. And now listen to his testimony. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, his perfect long-suffering. Now Moses, as an example, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You hear what Paul's saying? Paul says that I wasn't just showing mercy. I didn't receive God's perfect patience just for me. No, God is putting exhibit number one on display and saying, listen, how do you know that I'm mighty to save? Paul would say, this is how you can know. If God saved me, he can save you. He can save anyone. And that's the message that I want us to take a look at this morning. Our text is going to be uh, begin in verse 1 of chapter 9. We're going to read down to verse 22. We'll see how far we get. I don't think we're going to get through all of this today, but we're going to, we're going to make our way through this scripture, okay? We want to just listen to what God has to say. Let's begin in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into that city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard that sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand to Damascus, into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent, has sent me to you so that you, let me start that again, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and, could, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some bread, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. 
all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? And yet Saul grew more and more uh, powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Now let's take a look at what is God saying to us here this morning. You got your three points here on the outline. Let me just give you, let me, I'll fill in the blanks here for you real quick, okay? And I'm going to make some changes, all right? So let me give you the blanks, make some changes, and then we'll dive into the sermon. Okay, you good? All right, here we go. Number one, people are converted to Christ. That's point number one. People are converted to Christ. Number two, here's the change. Strike people, and um, right above that, believers. Believers are connected through Christ. Believers are connected through Christ. Uh, point number three, here's change number three, or change number two, point number three. Uh, strike out people are, and put the church is, the church is commissioned uh, by Christ. I don't know if we're going to get to point number three, but you got the three points, all right? And, uh, and so here we go. Let's, uh, let's take a look at number one. People are converted to Christ. We see this in the opening nine verses of this chapter. Now, we need to stop here and just think about this word converted, right? Christianity is a converting religion. Christian, Christianity is not an optional religion, right? One of many religions on the buffet, uh, or ready, not one of many religions anyone can choose from. Many people wrongly believe, wrongly believe that Christianity is one option on the buffet line of religion, right? You can have a little bit of Jesus or you can have a whole lot of Buddhism. It doesn't matter what you choose off the buffet line as long as you choose something, you put some religion on your plate. That's not true, right? Christianity is a converting religion. And Christianity is not an add-on religion, right? As long as you add Jesus to whatever you believe, you'll be okay. That is not true, right? That is not true. Missiologists call that syncretism, where we, where we syncretize Christianity alongside, we just sync them together, Christianity and world religions and we'll just make them into a new religion, and that's okay. That's not what the Bible teaches, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. When I was in Cambodia eight or nine years ago, um, sharing Christ with people who were predominantly Buddhist, this is what we encountered, right? We had to stress that it wasn't, you can just add Jesus and still believe in Buddha. No, we had to communicate that Jesus Christ to believe on Jesus Christ was to repent and to turn, to convert from Buddhism and to believe that Jesus Christ alone is God. And believing that Jesus Christ alone died, was raised to life, right? This is the gospel. Christianity is a converting religion. And Christianity says that everybody has sinned against the one and only holy God. Everybody has sinned against the one and only holy God, right? Not just the Jeffrey Dahmers of life. Not just the ISIS leader of last week, al-Baghdadi, who, you know, the American soldiers were able to root out, which we could say, thank you, Jesus, right? But everyone has sinned against God. Christianity says that God's one and only Son has come to the world to die once and for all, for all sinners, in the place of all sinners. And anyone and everyone who repents of their sin and believes on him will be saved. And those who do not Repent and believe on him will perish. That's the heart of Christianity. And so this is what I mean when I say Christianity is a converting religion. In the life of the Apostle Paul, Saul 
we see that people are, must be converted to Christ. Notice before Christ. Before Christ, Saul was breathing out threats, uh, uh, breathing out murderous threats. We, we see that in, in verse 1. Verse 1 begins with, uh, meanwhile, meanwhile, uh, in the original language, it's a two-letter word, it's a conjunction, that, but, but what? But while Philip was in Samaria, Acts chapter 8, while the Samaritans were hearing the gospel and turning to Christ, things in Jerusalem, remember at the start of Acts chapter 8, that a great persecution broke out in Jerusalem against the church, Things in Jerusalem, and now 150 miles away, things were going from bad to worse. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats. He, that word breathing out, it's like a horse snorting. But he's just, man, I'm just going to stomp out Christianity. I'm going I'm to get rid of all Christians. I'm going to stop at nothing. Paul, in his own testimony, and before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, these were his words. He said in Acts chapter 26, verse 9 through 11, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of them, many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme either to deny that Jesus is the Christ or to get someone to say that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is Lord, and then we would have them put to death for saying that. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul said my life's mission was one, and that was to stamp out and to stomp out Christianity. Before Christ, murderous threats. But notice what happened. Arrested by Christ, Saul was arrested by Christ on the Damascus Road. He had his Damascus Road experience. Sometimes we'll say, you know, so-and-so had their Damascus Road experience, and we're talking about this dramatic conversion to Christ. Arrested by Christ, not arrested and put in handcuffs, but stopped, coming to a screeching halt. God was able to get Saul's attention. You say, what happened on the Damascus road? Well, we see that in the text there in verse 3. As he neared Damascus, suddenly there was a bright light. There was a voice from heaven. Knocked Saul to the ground. And Saul heard in that unmistakable language, Saul, Saul. Now, in Luke's gospel, Luke, who the human author of the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Luke... Uh, Whenever he used, recorded Jesus saying, recorded someone using that person's name, like in this case, Saul, Saul, in the Gospel of Luke, it was always a convicting, arresting moment. Saul, Saul. Saul was falling under the conviction of God here in this moment. Why do you persecute me? Why are you opposing me? And Saul's response was, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus. I am Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. I'm the one that you're trying to stamp and stomp out. Now, listen, this was a significant moment in the life of Paul because everything that Paul has set his life on, he said, I'm going to stomp out Christianity. Saul believed the reports on that resurrection Sunday that the tomb is empty, somebody took the body, the body couldn't be reproduced, 
But listen, it wasn't because of a resurrection. Jesus was dead somewhere. Saul was convinced of that, that Jesus was dead. And now, in a moment's time, he was confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ, the one who he was saying was dead, was really alive. He was arrested. He was convinced. He was convicted of who Jesus Christ is. Now notice what else happened. He was a set apart to God. Verse 6. This voice from heaven, Jesus Christ speaking, says, Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Right? Not what you should do, what you must do. Hear what's going on? Saul is no longer calling the shots in his life. It didn't matter that he had letters in his hand from the chief priests in Jerusalem to arrest those who were followers of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was in charge. Saul wasn't. Right? Saul wasn't. The Lord Jesus Christ was. And so the Bible says that when Saul got up off of the ground, he was blinded. I believe in that moment he was given a physical uh, illustration of his true spiritual condition. His physical blindness, his physical blindness mirrored his spiritual blindness. Now you understand who Saul was. Saul was not an ignorant pagan. Ignorant in that he was unlearned. He was a Pharisee. He was trained in the law. And yet in spite of all of the knowledge that he had of God's law, Saul was spiritually blind. In spite of all of the rules that he faithfully and dutifully kept trying to earn a righteousness before God, Saul was spiritually dead. And later on when he would write to the Corinthians, listen to how Paul describes the condition of all humanity, you, me, before Jesus Christ. Even if our gospel is veiled, the good news of Jesus Christ is veiled, it is veiled, hidden to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that is, displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Listen, God is mighty to save and whenever God saves, there's always a conversion, always a turning from and a turning to the Lord Jesus, or turning from sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to be convinced of this. The question this morning is, have you ever turned to Jesus Christ? Have you ever turned to Jesus Christ? I, I know that I, most of you have. Uh, there may be someone here who you haven't. This is the most important question that you could ever answer. You see, without turning from your sin and self and turning to Jesus Christ, you're lost. The Bible says that we're spiritually blind. We can't see. Unless God opens our eyes, we can't see. He has to, oh, have your eyes been opened? Have you ever turned to the Lord Jesus Christ? It doesn't matter if you're in church. It doesn't matter if you're trying really hard. It, your Bible says you're blind, you're lost. You might think you're on the right road, but the road that you're on is going to be a road that leads you to eternal damnation. Some of you here this morning, God has just been pressing this upon my heart this week that maybe someone here this morning, you, you believe, you're, you're thinking in your mind, that listen, God can, can't save me. God won't save me. Why would God even want me? Right, that... You don't know what I've done. You're right, I don't. God does already. And he sent his son. 
to pay for your sin so that if you would turn to him and you would confess him, he would save you. That is mighty to save. I just want you to know this, that if you're here and you're thinking, listen, I don't think God can save me because of what I've done or I don't know why God would want me. Listen, that's a lie from hell. God is able to save, and God will save if you turn to him and cry. The Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse, 30, uh, two, verse uh, 21, I think it is. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 21 says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. I want you to take heart here, brothers and sisters. Some of you here this morning, you have people in your lives that you have been praying for for years for their salvation. But instead of getting better, things are getting worse. I want you to know this, that God is still mighty to save. No one ever, on that morning, on that road to Damascus, I promise you they weren't weren't back in Jerusalem or Damascus. Believers were saying, well, I think today's the day Saul's going to get saved. Nobody thought that. Nobody thought that. It says he was snorting, snorting out his murderous threats against Jesus Christ and his followers. And yet God met him on that Damascus road and he was converted to Christ. And if God could save Paul, he can save your spouse. And if God could save Paul, he can save your children. If God could save Paul, he can save your parents. If God could save Paul, God, he can save your, your co-workers and your neighbors. And God is mighty to save. Right? I think of George Mueller uh, back in the 1800s, a Baptist minister who God uh, had placed on his heart the plight of the orphans throughout England. And during his ministry, uh, thousands of prayers were answered and thousands of children were helped and rescued through the orphanages that he started throughout England. The year was 1844. God had placed upon George Mueller's heart to begin to pray daily for the, for the conversion of five people. Pray daily for the conversion of five people. 18 months after he began to pray, one person, one of the five was converted. Five years after he began to pray, the second was converted. Six years after he began to pray daily, a third was converted. Four and five, he prayed daily. And it wasn't until the last year of his life, the last year of his life, that number four and five were converted. 52 years of daily prayer for the conversion of five. And so I say to us here this morning, don't despair. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop asking. Don't stop enlisting others to pray with you for your loved ones. For who knows? Maybe today, your loved one, the one that you're praying for, will have their Damascus road and come to Christ. Maybe you're here today. And you coming to Christ today will be the answer to a loved one's prayer. God is mighty to save. And people are converted to Christ. And number two, God is mighty to save. And believers are connected through Christ. Believers are connected to Christ. I want you to notice something here this morning, beginning in verse 10. We're introduced to a disciple named, uh, a disciple from Damascus named Ananias, right? The disciple named Ananias from Damascus. And the Lord had a difficult assignment for Ananias. Let's just kind of stop there and think about that for a moment. Has the Lord ever given you 
a difficult assignment? To go and humble yourself to a brother or sister in Christ and whom you've offended and sinned against and ask them to forgive you. To forgive the one who has hurt and harmed you in ways that are inexplicable. To stand up and do what is right even though doing so you know will mean public rejection and censure, the loss of a promotion or a position or stature, maybe even the loss of employment. To confront a brother or sister living in sin, to, to, uh, to give a verbal witness for someone to someone of Jesus Christ. Has the Lord ever asked you to do something difficult? Has, to say, you know what, I'm going, to, from this day forward, I choose to live in moral purity, even though by making this commitment before God today, I know that the person that I'm involved in will break the relationship off. Difficult assignments. The Lord appeared to, Saul, uh, to Ananias and says, And Ananias, go. I want you to notice there, verse 11, go. Verse 15, go. We're going to come back to that in a second, right? Go. Go to the straight street, the house of Judas, Ask for a man named Saul from Tarsus. And you can understand and appreciate Ananias' opposition and apprehension, right? Lord, haven't you heard what he's done to your holy people? Have you ever said that to the Lord yourself? Lord, haven't you heard? Lord, don't you? Hello, do you not know what's going on down here? And I like the Lord's response because he tells us something about the persecutor from Jerusalem named Saul. Verse 9, we already saw that when he got to Damascus for three days, he was blind. He didn't eat or drink or anything. He was fasting. Verse 11 tells us, Jesus tells us that he is praying. Here's this one who was trying to stomp out Christianity, now crying out to God. And verse 11, God says, Lord Jesus says to Ananias, go. And then uh, verse 15, my Bible has an exclamation point after the word go, right? It's like, Go to the house of Saul, uh, go to the house of Judas on the straight street, ask for a man named Saul of Tarsus, he's praying, um, he's seen you coming, and so go, right? Uh, Lord, haven't you heard what he's done? Lord, I don't want to do that, I'm not, not going to do that. And he's giving all the reasons why, right? And verse 15, go, <laughs> go. He's my chosen instrument. I don't think we'll have a chance to talk about that verse this morning, but we'll get to it next week, right? And I want you to know, in verse 17, I want you to see in verse 17, and notice it says, Ananias, what does it say? Ananias ran like Jonah. Right? Is that what the Bible says? What does your Bible say? What's the word? Ananias what? what? I can't understand y'all. What y'all say? Went. Went. There you go, yeah. That's what happens when we have a bunch of Bible translations. We've got a bunch of different words, right? But it's went. Ananias went. Went to the house of Judas on straight street. And he entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, what does it say? What does it say? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Here we have this hunter from Jerusalem being cared for by the hunted from Damascus. Brother Saul. Who do you think need to hear those words? Ananias? Saul? 
Probably both. Yeah, how do, you, how do you get this persecutor from Jerusalem becoming a brother with a disciple from Damascus? How does that happen? God connects us believers through Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says that one time not only were we alienated from God and hostile to God, but we were at odds with one another. And it's only through Jesus Christ we've become brothers and sisters. Let me, let me share with you the testimony of Corey Ten Boone, a, a, a Nazi survivor from the, of the Holocaust in, in the prison camp Ravensbrück. These are her words, and I, I, I'll, I'll try to... Yeah, okay, uh, these are her words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room when I had just, where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, so just a couple years after World War II. And I had come from Holland to, Germ to defeat Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most here in that bitter, bombed-out land. And I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind. I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. Well, the Lord Jesus... Uh, Spoke, God spoke about that in the prophet Isaiah. But anyways, we'll let Corey Ten Boone take credit for it. <laughs> when we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him walking toward me against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, the, the blue uniform, the visor cap and the skull and the crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room with harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking past this man naked. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing uh, the Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensburg, or Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now, he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I who spoke so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook, rather than take the hand, his, that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fräulein. And again, the hand went out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins needed to be forgiven every day, 
could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow and agonizing death simply by the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled was the most difficult thing I had to do, for I knew I had to do it. I knew that well. The message that God forgives our sins has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it was not a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. I knew it was not only a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. And since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with a the coldness clutching my heart. Forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started on my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joint hands, and then the healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. I forgive you, brother. Because God is mighty to save. Believers are connected through Jesus Christ. Now let's think about this for a moment. About all the ways and all the reasons why we become divided over in the body of Christ. How easily we're offended. How quickly we pick up an offense and we nurse a resentment. How slow we are into forgiving others. Well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said. You, they don't look at me right. They, we have disagreements over how we should do things. And in the church, we don't, we don't like uh, the way, you know, sometimes we don't like the way we do things. I mean, we, we get all worked up in arms over things, right? And we have brothers and sisters who we join together and we, we separate and we divide. We join together in worship and, and we lift our voices to the Lord in worship but we divide and we, we go our separate ways and we, we only acknowledge Him if we have to. We'll be cordial and polite because we don't want to make a scene but our hearts are cold. God help us. The mighty God who saves us from our sin is the mighty God who connects us as brothers and sisters through Christ. The third point we're going to get to next week, we'll look there next week, okay? And that is the church is commissioned by Jesus Christ. I want to end this morning 
I just, I just want to, um, I want to end this morning uh, with a pastoral thought, pastoral in, from your pastor's heart to you. Okay. Treasuring Christ in the midst of life. That that first word in verse one. Meanwhile. How do we treasure Christ when we find ourselves living in the meanwhiles of life? Meanwhile, their kids are following God, but my kids are chasing the devil. You ever been there? Meanwhile, their prayers are being answered. I'm only hearing crickets. Meanwhile, they've been promoted, but I've lost my job. Meanwhile, As I just read and meditated this passage this week and just thought about this, here's the thought that I believe that the Lord wants me to share with you this morning, and that is this, that is in Christ. When you and I are, are converted to Christ, we turn from ourself and our sin, we turn to Jesus Christ, we call out to Him. We never go through the meanwhiles of life alone. We never do. We never go through the meanwhiles of life alone. Now, I don't know what your meanwhile is. But we don't go through alone. The thing that struck me in this passage is, is the, how the Lord was close to his people. It's like Saul is breathing out his threats against the church, the Lord's disciples. And yet when the Lord meets Saul on Damascus Road, what does he say? He says, why, he doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? Paul never lifted a hand against the physical Jesus. He lifted his hand against the people of God. And yet what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you're lifting your hand against me. He identifies with us in our suffering. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, verse 16. 14 tells us that we have a high priest in heaven who is able to sympathize or empathize with us in our sufferings. Why? Because he um, was tempted in every way as we are and yet was without sin. Verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, asking for mercy and help in our time of need. The Lord has his disciples in Jerusalem. The Lord has his disciples in Damascus. The Lord has his disciples in Saginaw. The holy people in Jerusalem who were being harassed and hunted down by this man named Saul. Your holy people. You know, I think God is just saying, listen, I want you to know this, is that whatever's going on in your life, your mind, Whatever you face in your life, you're mine. You're mine. And he makes us brothers and sisters. He identifies with us. He walks with us. We're his. And he puts us into a fraternity. Not like some crazy fraternity on a college campus, but a brotherhood of brothers and sisters that spans eternity, uh, spans a, a, a time and continents and geography. And he makes us one. Brings us a brother from India and we're together in Christ. 
And this morning, treasure this. Treasure this. It's easy for us to finish up and we're going to sing a, pray a prayer, we're going to sing a song and we're going to walk out the door, we're going to talk about football and whatever we're going to talk about. But brothers, we need to treasure this. This Christ says, you're mine. In the meanwhiles of life, you're mine. He wants us to know that. And he puts us together as his people. And we're part of this brotherhood, the family of God. We need to know this. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you think this that God can't forgive me. I hope this morning that you hear that God is able to and he wants to, he longs to, delights in forgiving people just like you. He is mighty to save. Know this. Do not despair. God is able to save your loved one who seems today so far away. God is mighty to save. In Christ, you're his. Take this to heart. If you need prayer, uh, Scott and Sandy, would you be willing to meet on the side here? If you need prayer, Scott and Sandy will be here on the side. Ernestine, would you be willing to pray with people over there? If you need prayer, would you go receive the ministry of prayer during our time of response? Father, we bow before you today. Thank you that you are a God who is mighty to save. Exhibit number one, the Apostle Paul. If you could save Paul, you can save anyone. And many of us are in that exhibit line. If God could save anyone, he can save you because he saved me. Father, encourage our hearts this morning with this truth. Father, help us to never tire telling people of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, if there's any here today who believe that they are beyond your ability to save, draw them to yourself even now. Reveal yourself to them. Let those scales fall off their eyes so that they can see. Bring them to yourself today. We pray and ask this all through the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing our closing song of response. If you need prayer, our prayer teams are going to be on the side. Let's sing to him.